History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, American Barbarism, Ida B. Wells. Most political thinkers would be gratified to learn of their ideas remaining vitally relevant over many decades. Ida B. Wells, though, would be horrified to know that her writings speak so directly to the concerns of America some 90 years after her death. The murder of George Floyd in May of 2020 galvanized a new wave of protests under the banner of the Black Lives Matter movement, which has, since 2013, aimed to end police violence and all racially motivated violence against African Americans. This movement responds to what is clearly a systemic problem. The Guardian reported that police killed 1,134 people in America in 2015, with young black men nine times more likely to be killed than anyone else. In providing these statistics, The Guardian was reprising the journalistic efforts of Wells, who likewise gathered information about extrajudicial violence against black men and put it before the public. But Wells did something more. She offered an explanation of the system of brutality she cataloged, an explanation that was based on her observations of the American South in the decades following the Civil War, but remains startlingly and depressingly applicable to modern-day race relations. As she explains in an autobiography that remained unfinished at her death in 1930, Wells was actually born during the Civil War in Mississippi in 1862. Her parents were slaves, with her father James Wells being the offspring of a white plantation owner and Peggy, one of this owner's slaves. In another resonance with 2020, Ida was orphaned as a teenager due to an epidemic, in this case, of yellow fever, with the result that she had to take over the care of her younger siblings at the tender age of 16. From these inauspicious beginnings, she would rise to be a star in the firmament of African-American activism. Her career began when she twice sued railroad companies for ejecting her from first-class cars. She described her experiences, which included biting the hand of the conductor who tried to remove her, in articles published by a newspaper in Memphis, where Wells was working as a teacher. Her story was picked up by the New York Globe, edited by none other than T. Thomas Fortune. Soon the name of Wells, or rather Iola, the pen name she used for her articles, was known around the country to readers of the black press. In 1888, She even became the first woman officer of the National Colored Press Association. But it was an event in March of 1892 that brought her to true prominence. After three black men accused of causing unrest were arrested in Memphis, a white mob broke into the jail in the middle of the night, dragged them away, and shot them. Outraged, Wells wrote an editorial recommending that black people abandon Memphis, which she called a town which will neither protect our lives and property nor give us a fair trial in the courts, but takes us out and murders us in cold blood when accused by white persons. In a flash of the sardonic wit that would become familiar to her readers, she remarked in another article that African Americans were comparing Memphis to hell, without stopping to think they were doing the real hell an injustice. Wells had found her calling as a crusader against lynching. She traveled to Philadelphia, where she stayed with another character familiar to us, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, and to New York to join forces with Fortune. 
In that same year of 1892, and in New York, she gave the first of many public addresses on the topic of lynching. The following year saw her campaigning abroad, in England and Scotland. In another case of the admiration that black activists felt for Britain in this period, she said that, America cannot and will not ignore the voice of a nation that is her superior in civilization. Like Frederick Douglass, she contrasted the openness of British society to the racism of the United States, saying that visiting England was like being born into another world. This strategy of bringing international condemnation against the racist violence of her homeland infuriated white racists in America. Through threats of violence, they had already closed her newspaper back in Memphis and made her afraid to return to the city. Now, an Atlanta paper called her a Negro adventuress who has so deftly gulled a number of credulous persons in England. But Wells did not back down. Instead, she doubled down. Over the coming decade, she published a series of works on the topic of lynching, including Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases, A Red Record, and Mob Rule in New Orleans. Her project had the explicit backing of Frederick Douglass, who noted that the power of these works lay in their wealth of hard information about the prevalence of lynching, facts laid out plain and unvarnished, as she herself put it. In A Red Record, especially, she included statistics on lynchings by state and also names of victims, along with the putative crimes for which they were executed. This list of offenses features items like self-defense, insulting whites, asking white woman to marry him, and no offense at all. As she says later in this book, black people at this time could be lynched for anything or nothing. To preempt charges of inaccuracy, Wells quotes reports from the white press to document all this information, saying, out of their own mouths shall the murderers be condemned. All of this did have some effect, as shown by a gradual decline in the number of lynchings, and legal moves made by some states in the South to put a stop to the practice. As Wells saw clearly, moral condemnation had its place, but what really did the trick was economic threat. She wryly remarked that, the appeal to the white man's pocket has ever been more effectual than all the appeals ever made to his conscience. The real cost of lynchings was paid in blood by black people, of course, but they also hurt Southern economies by discouraging investment and causing a flight of African-American labor to the North. Thus, in 1893, the governor of Alabama said that these murders were not only dishonorable, but also a great obstacle to our healthy progress and prosperity. For similar reasons, Georgia introduced anti-lynching legislation, though this was of dubious value, at least in the short term. As Wells recorded, Georgia was the state with the most lynchings in 1894, with 19 in that year alone, out of 197 nationwide. Over a longer period, it's been calculated that between 1889 and 1932, almost 4,000 people were lynched in the United States. That's three people every week for more than 30 years. Wells's campaign was obviously important and admirable, but why would it be of interest to philosophers? It hardly takes subtle moral reasoning to disapprove of gangs of private citizens torturing people to death without even being sure whether they are guilty of a crime. Actually, as Wells pointed out, sometimes the mob knew for sure the victim wasn't guilty. She relates an episode where a boy was killed in his stepfather's stead simply because the stepfather couldn't be found. Yet, Wells's achievement is indeed of lasting philosophical importance because of her incisive analysis of the role that gender and systematic oppression 
played in lynch law. Taking gender first, it is, of course, not irrelevant that Wells herself was a woman. She faced a tension between her career as an activist and her role as a wife and mother. Her husband, Ferdinand Barnett, was also an activist and had even written against lynching, so their marriage was a political alliance as well as a chance for Wells to gain financial stability. That was perhaps underappreciated by her friend, the white women's rights campaigner Susan B. Anthony, who told Wells that the decision to wed had left her with divided duty. Wells, or Wells Barnett, as she was known after having married, promoted the importance of family life for women, writing that those who shirk their duties in that respect have robbed themselves of one of the most glorious advantages in the development of their own womanhood. But this may have been, in part, because she knew her readers might object to the efforts she continued to devote to activism when she could instead have been focusing on her children. Always canny in her self-presentation, she made sure to include a scene in the autobiography where she hesitated whether to travel away from her family to confront yet another injustice, and was encouraged by her young son to do so. Mother, she quotes him saying, if you don't go, nobody else will. She faced problems like this even before marrying, since it seemed to some inappropriate for a single woman to be speaking so prominently, and on the issue of lynching in particular. Bear in mind we are literally talking about the Victorian age here, when single women were supposed to be sexually innocent, at least if they were virtuous. But here was Wells talking about lynching, and this inevitably involved talking about sex. The primary justification offered for lynch law was that without it, black men could not be stopped from assaulting and raping white women. Thus, for instance, and to the eternal shame of our favorite discipline, a professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt named Collins Denny argued, rape must cease and then lynching will cease. Have you thought about studying rape as well as lynching? If this was not used as an outright justification for lynchings, it was invoked to make the outbursts of violence seem at least understandable, a case of chivalrous white southern men rising to the defense of their womenfolk. This was a message one could hear from the highest levels of society. Theodore Roosevelt did want the lynchings to stop, but assumed they were caused by black men raping white women. The governor of Georgia, who passed the aforementioned laws against lynching, also said that the state had no lynching at first except for rape. The result was that, in order to condemn lynching, Wells had to explore the intimate connections between racial violence and violence against women. Firstly, she asked how white racists could pretend to be horrified by interracial sexual relations, given the huge number of mixed-race people fathered by slave masters with captive women. Indeed, as we saw, Wells' own father had issued from such a union. From a modern-day point of view, we would presumably consider any sexual encounter between a master and slave to be non-consensual, but Wells did not need to insist on this point to make the case that black women were routinely being raped by white men, both during and after slavery none of which assaults, of course, were punished by lynching. Indeed, very few were punished at all. Apparently, the famous Southern chivalry stopped at the color line. Wells also pointed to the fact that, although it was tacitly acceptable for white men to rape black women, it was unthinkable for white men to marry them. You cannot deny that the white man is continually mixing his blood with black. It is only when he seeks to do it honorably that it becomes a crime. Here, it is worth noting that, like T. Thomas Fortune, Wells refused to condemn Frederick Douglass for marrying a white woman. 
To the contrary, she visited their home and was told by Douglas that she was the first black visitor ever to show civility and politeness to his wife. Wells made a still more provocative point when she argued that the vast majority of supposed rapes of white women by black men were actually cases of consensual relations. This was a central claim in her writing from the very beginning. One of her first editorials caused huge uproar with the following passage, Nobody believed the old threadbare lie that Negro men assault white women. If Southern white men are not careful, they will overreach themselves and a conclusion will be reached which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. A white newspaper spluttered in response that there are some things that the Southern white man will not tolerate, in this case the outrageous suggestion that white women might actually want to have affairs with black men. Much of Wells's campaign was devoted to rendering this proposition a plausible one. As usual, she did so by offering documentary evidence, for instance of white women who had long-standing relationships with black men and then accused them of rape, perhaps out of fear they may have a mixed-race baby. In light of this sort of evidence, she said, it was clear that lynching was only a means by which the southern white men, in insatiate fury, wreak their vengeance without intervention of law upon the Afro-Americans who consort with their women. Then, too, Wells had more than evidence on her side. There was also common sense. Racist propaganda pretended that the abolition of slavery had unleashed the propensities of black men to commit sexual violence. As one article from a white newspaper put it, there is no longer a restraint upon the brute passion of the Negro. Wells exposed the absurdity of this. The thinking public will not easily believe freedom and education more brutalizing than slavery, and the world knows that the crime of rape was unknown during four years of civil war when the white women of the South were at the mercy of the race, which is all at once charged with being a bestial one. Finally, if even all these arguments were ignored, she could point to the fact that most lynchings were not even supposedly in retribution for rape. Fewer than one-third of them involved even a charge, never mind proof, of this crime. This whole aspect of Wells's critique remains relevant for modern-day race relations. She would have been wholly unsurprised by Donald Trump's warnings about rapists coming across the Mexican border. But of still deeper significance is her analysis of violence against black men as a tool of racial oppression. As with the police killings in today's America, the sheer number of lynchings across the American South in the late 19th century showed that something systematic was happening, something that was, at some level, deliberate. Occasionally, defenders of lynch law would come out and say as much. As one of them explained, the difference between the races was so great that black people should not be governed by Anglo-Saxon law, but by lynch law. It was necessary to have one standard of right for the white citizen and another law and another standard of right for the black citizen. At a more crass level, we find such documents as a horrifying photograph commemorating a multiple hanging, which has a doggerel poem printed below it. This is a land of white man's rule. The red man, once in an early day, was told by the whites to mend his way. The Negro now, by eternal grace, must learn to stay in the Negro's place. Wells was the African-American activist who understood this best. She saw that lynchings were not a response to a supposed decline of black men into criminal brutality. To the contrary, they were a response to the gradual rise of African-Americans within American society. That triple murder in Memphis, she said, opened my eyes to what lynching really was, 
an excuse to get rid of Negroes who were acquiring wealth and property, and thus keep the race terrorized. The removal of the restraints of slavery was indeed relevant, but not for the reason given by the apologists of lynching. Rather, it was because the white population needed to find a way to hold on to their supremacy. The more I studied the situation, she wrote, the more I was convinced that the Southerner had never gotten over his resentment that the Negro was no longer his plaything, his servant, and his source of income. Lynching was thus intended to convey a message to all black people, not only, or even primarily, its direct victims. The real purpose of these savage demonstrations, said Wells, is to teach the Negro that in the South he has no rights that the law will enforce. Or, more pithily, while discussing the motivation of the lynchers, they say we must teach them a lesson. What lesson? The lesson of subordination. Nor did Wells confine her critique to the lynchers and their apologists. All white America was complicit in lynch law, if only by failing to end it. In a typically rhetorical passage, she wrote, Men and women of America, are you proud of this record which the Anglo-Saxon race has made for itself? Your silence seems to say that you are. Your silence encourages a continuance of this sort of horror. Only by earnest, active, united endeavor to arouse public sentiment can we hope to put a stop to these demonstrations of American barbarism. And Wells was indeed optimistic that racial violence could be eliminated from American society. In a chapter at the end of her book, A Red Record, called The Remedy, she put her faith, ironically enough, in the American legal system. She wrote, We do ask that the law shall punish all alike, and she juxtaposed the anarchy of lynch law with the success of self-government. Consistently with this, Wells spent much of her later life engaging in more conventional political activism. She was involved in the suffrage movement, though she saw that the enfranchisement of white women would likely be of no help in ending racial oppression, as her friend Susan B. Anthony hoped. This was only one of many disagreements with fellow activists. She was occasionally critical even of early sponsors like Fortune, finding his rhetoric too divisive, though she wholeheartedly endorsed his principle of party neutrality. She knew both Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, and sided with the latter in being critical of Washington's exclusive focus on vocational education for blacks, accusing Washington of the sophistry of the reasoning that any one system of education could fit the needs of an entire race. With the turn of the 20th century, her influence began to wane. In 1895, Wells had been held in one newspaper as the proper person to succeed Frederick Douglass as leader of the Afro-American race. But an organization she helped found in 1909, the Negro Fellowship League, was overtaken by the NAACP, from which she was alienated after a dispute over whether she would be given a leadership position. Through it all, though, she never stopped decrying violence and false accusations against African Americans. Near the end of her autobiography, she tells the story of what happened when she distributed buttons in support of a group of black soldiers who had been court-martialed and executed by the U.S. military. When policemen came to tell her to desist on the grounds that her actions were treasonous, she thundered at them, I'd rather go down in history as one lone Negro who dared to tell the government that it had done a dastardly thing than to save my skin by taking back what I have said. Then she quoted Shakespeare at them. The police were utterly flummoxed, says Wells, and looked at me as if they didn't know what to do which is one problem she never had. Happily, it will be equally easy for you to know what to do a couple of weeks from now, because we'll be joined by an expert on the history of African-American feminism. 
We'll be speaking to her about Wells and also other figures she has highlighted in her research, especially those connected to the National Association of Colored Women, like Fanny Barrier-Williams and Mary Church Terrell. We'll also speak about Anna Julia Cooper, the subject of the last episode, which means two Coopers for the price of one, since our guest will be none other than Brittany Cooper here on The History of Africa Lost. I'm gonna tell God all of my troubles.